So the thing about the 1830s, truly a golden era of great American names, Theophilus Fisk, Thurlow Weed, Churchill Chamberlain, Condi Ragu, Erastus Root. <laughs> there was a guy in Van Buren's machine in Albany named Erastus Root. Uh, all those upstate New York guys, just a parade of truly kingly names. For example, Rensler Van Rensler. <laughs> he was the son of large Dutch landowner Stephen Ren- Van Rensler, who decided, yeah, you, my son, he's Rensler Van Rensler. <laughs> we love to have goofy Dutch names so much, we use them twice. These are all the names I'm going to check into hotels under once we get famous from history podcasting. One of the, my favorites, Jabez Delano Hammond. <laughs> so yeah, if you're looking for a good pseudonym or maybe a stage name, I'd recommend cracking open Sean Willens' The Rise of American Democracy, flipping to just any random page, just killer names on every single page. From Elbridge Jerry uh, onward, it's just a, a treasure trove. Anyway, hello, and welcome to Hell of Presidents, Episode 3, The Little Magician. This week, we're talking all about the two guys who defined the 1830s in presidential history. That is, Ol' Hickory himself, Andrew Jackson, and the little magician, Martin Van Buren. We're talking about the rise of mass democracy, the earliest stages of populism as an American political force, the Albany Regency, and the development of the Democratic Party. Are you ready, Matt? Oh, I've never been more ready. I know that Martin Van Buren is one of your guys, probably the guy this podcast exists most to cover. Yeah, he's the single dainty-handed figure responsible for this podcast because uh, you get me chewed up and we're watching a Seagal movie, the president I'm most likely to start talking about is Martin Van Buren. Yes, truly. The other 19 episodes are just filler to talk Van Buren. So let's get talking. It's 1837, and there is a two-ton block of cheese slowly, slowly moldering in the foyer of the White House. It was Andrew Jackson's final days in office, and the block of dairy had been sitting there for almost two years. Presented by a New York dairy farmer as a gift, the cheese had toured all through the Northeast before arriving in Washington and aging in the presidential mansion for the second half of Jackson's second term. Jackson was now leaving office so his vice president and political fixer, Martin Van Buren, could take his place. So he decided to, one final time, let the people get some of that cheese. (laughs) Opening the doors of the White House to the public, a throng of D.C. townspeople descended on the cheese, consuming the whole thing in two hours. It was the kind of display of vulgar populism that Jackson had been associated with his entire career and had appalled his genteel detractors. In fact, the cheese mob at the end of his two terms is a fitting bookend to the beginning of Jackson's time in the White House. Jackson's first inaugural in 1828 saw D.C. inundated with an unprecedented mob. Contemporary estimates suggest 21,000 supporters were present at the ceremony. In a move that seems truly insane today, the White House itself opened for a public reception. The lower floors were so packed with people of all classes and colors, men and women, that many reported having to use the windows to get out of the building. And Jackson himself had to escape down a back stairwell to get out of the crowd. Supreme Court Justice Joseph Story remarked that the reign of, quote, King Mob seemed triumphant. And D.C. socialite Margaret Bayard Smith would say, the majesty of the people had disappeared. And a rabble, a mob of boys, Negroes, women, children, scrambling, fighting, robbing, 
What a pity. What a pity. The crowd would eventually be dispersed by moving the whiskey punch and ice cream out into the lawn. These wild party bookends of Jackson's presidency have become American historical legend. In the words of Willens, they, quote, emblematized, depending on the viewer, either the ebullience or the crass vulgarity of the president's admirers. It was either a celebration of General Jackson returning American democracy to the hands of the people. And we give it back to you, the people. Or the overrunning of our enlightened, august institutions by the filthy, uneducated swine of the masses. But you know, these can kind of be a yin and yang of the era, the competing tensions that work through Jackson's presidency. Now, Matt, would you rather eat the cheese or have the whiskey punch? I mean, if you have enough of one, then you don't even need the other one. <laughs> just as long as you're gorging. Yes. So uh, whatever, wherever, whatever is in front of me, I'm just going to just go to town on. That's that's all you can do. And then you will be ever ever after able to say I had the president's disgusting cheese <laughs> or punch. I love the Jackson inaugural stories because they are such a quintessential scene of early America of the White House doors literally being thrown open for the people to enter and the dainty, genteel D.C. elites uh, being so abhorred by the masses descending on their town. Every single monocle popping out in a row, <laughs> a, a bunch of dowagers just fainting we love the big cheese don't we folks we love it we love a big cheese they call me something they call me the big cheese sometimes so andrew jackson he is the towering figure of this era stretching his life from the revolution to the middle of the 19th century so let's get into it who was andrew jackson andrew jackson was born march 15th 1767 in the Waxhaws border region of the Carolinas. Young Jackson served in the Revolutionary War, even getting captured with his brother in 1781. When he refused to clean one of his captive British officer's boots, the officer slashed him with a sword, leaving permanent scars on Andrew's face and hands, the first of many battle scars he'd collect in his life. While in captivity, he and his brother contracted smallpox, and upon their release, both Andrew's brother and mother died of complications from diseases caught in the war. After bouncing around between relatives and cobbling together a legal education in the Carolinas, Jackson lighted out to the Western District of North Carolina, what would soon become Tennessee. Establishing a law practice in the frontier town of Nashville, Jackson rose to local prominence. He became one of Tennessee's first congressmen when it became a state in 1796. Jackson would serve as a U.S. Senator from Tennessee and on the Tennessee Supreme Court, as well as building up his Tennessee plantation, slowly acquiring over a thousand acres and eventually up to 150 slaves working his cotton fields. But as he established himself among the Tennessee elite, his eyes would turn to war. Meanwhile, on the northern end of the American experiment in Kinderhook in upstate New York on December 5th, 1782, Martin Van Buren was born to Abraham Van Buren and his mother, Maria Hose Van Allen, two descendants of multi-generational Dutch families. Uh, he grew up speaking Dutch, the only U.S. president for whom English is not a first language. And his father was a classic striving middle-class early American, as close as you can find in the rural parts of the country. He was a small farmer and tavern owner. And little Martin learned the politics of the region in his father's tavern, meeting local muckety-mucks and such. And like other presidents, such as Andrew Jackson and Abraham Lincoln, Van Buren was a self-taught lawyer who was able to pass the bar through independent examination, not by going to some fancy college. 
And he spent a few years in New York City cozying up to the Democratic-Republican establishment while clerking for a prominent lawyer before going back home to be elected to the state Senate in 1812. Back in Tennessee, Jackson was elected Major General of the Tennessee Militia in 1802. Over the next decade, Jackson became enamored in various paths of Western expansion, including becoming tangentially involved in disgraced former Vice President Aaron Burr's scheme to mount a military expedition to push the Spanish out of Florida and Texas. But upon learning Burr's plan to seize New Orleans from the U.S. and establish a new Gulf Coast empire for himself, Jackson distanced himself from these plans, establishing enough plausible deniability by sending warning letters to President Jefferson. However... Jackson's lust for invading Florida would persist. The Jackson lusts for Florida. Like a Queens retiree, he must invade Florida. Also around this time, Jackson killed a guy. The first of many. A dispute over a horse race bet led Jackson to challenge fellow attorney Charles Dickinson to a duel, uh, during which Jackson allowed Dickinson to shoot him right in the chest in order to buy time to get a clean shot off. Jackson killed Dickinson, but the bullet remained lodged in his chest for the rest of his life causing him brutal health issues. And Jackson's dueling is also the stuff of American legend. Pretty much any high schooler knows that guy had a bullet lodged in him. But just the specifics of going into a duel with the strategy of like, I'm just going to let this guy shoot me, so then I have all the time I need to shoot and kill him is pretty hardcore. Yes, but it must be remembered that he also cheated a little bit. He was very thin, and he had a very, very big, bulky coat. Oh, he puffed himself up like a like a big bird or something. Yeah, and he stood sort of at an angle so that when the bullet did hit him in the chest, it sort of glanced a little bit. But that takes an insane amount of balls. Uh, but he was also working the refs to the degree that he needed to. And then after he gathered himself up, he took a nice, clean aim and shot the dude right in the groin <laughs> oh god i mean good or bad guy jackson may as jackson may be but you cannot say that he was not a badass he was the guy that dudes like teddy roosevelt sort of pretended to be when the war of 1812 broke out jackson assembled and commanded an army of between 2,000 and 2,500 volunteers and spent the first parts of the war engaging the british and their native american allies in louisiana and the mississippi territory his victories over the course of several skirmishes successfully pushed the British and Spanish forces out of the southern U.S. and achieved huge territorial concessions from Native Americans in present-day Alabama and Georgia. In late 1814, Jackson got word of a planned British invasion of New Orleans and rushed his forces to the port. Putting the city under martial law, Jackson mustered a force of around 5,000 men, including white and non-white volunteers, Many amateurs are poorly trained and established defenses of the city. On January 8th, 1815, around 10,000 well-trained British troops mounted an assault on Jackson's forces. Despite an artillery barrage and being well outnumbered and well out-trained, Jackson's forces absolutely walloped the British. The British forces admitting to over 2,000 casualties, including one of their commanders, and Jackson only 71 casualties. The British retreated, Jackson claimed a massive victory for the Americans, and all this despite the Treaty of Ghent having ended the war a month earlier. And this is the moment that secures Jackson's legacy as a national hero. Despite anything that comes after, Jackson is the hero of New Orleans, who through personal bravery, tenacity, and command won a virtual second war of independence in Americans' eyes. He was consecrated as a national hero and a paragon of American frontier virtue. And while Andrew Jackson is doing all of that, Martin Van Buren is in Albany, New York, scheming and wheedling his way to power behind the scenes. 
After being elected to the New York State Senate in 1812, at the age of 29, young Martin Van Buren helped steer the course of New York government support for the 1812 war effort, even though later political opponents would claim that he had not supported the war. It was a typical Van Buren thing of putting his finger in the air first to find out where the wind was blowing and then following the current. (laughs) When the war became reality, he was for the war and he helped support the Madison administration in the New York government at the time. And when he's raising his stature in the state Senate, he is eventually coming into conflict with the political machine of Governor DeWitt Clinton. Another great 19th century name. Clinton was a figure very influential in early New York, one of the great internal improvers whose main legacy was building the Erie Canal. It took a lot of doing and a lot of fighting against small government Jefferson types like Van Buren who were against spending money on that kind of thing, which they believed was unconstitutional. Uh, eventually, Van Buren and Clinton became antagonists, and it came down to the fact that Van Buren's ambitions were bigger than his position within the Clinton machine would allow. He wanted more, and as an energetic, motivated, smart, young, new American, he could connect to other smart, young, middle-class, striving members of the National Republican Party and cobble together a political machine that would allow them to confront the dynastic, aristocratic politics that dominated the early republic. They didn't have names they could build on. They didn't have vast fortunes they could rely on. They didn't have military exploits they could point to to the public. What they had was the ability to recognize like interests among other people in similar positions similarly ambitious similar in politics similarly blocked by the existing power structure in the state so van buren by gathering together these young hustlers and a few of the older more powerful aristocrats who were outside of that ruling clique uh created a faction within the new york state government They were inspired by Tammany Hall, who at that time was building an urban political machine in New York City, and the Tammany Hall had as their logo the Bucktail, the tail of the buck. So Van Buren called his team the Bucktails. And through these personal allegiances, all these hilariously named young politicians and Van Buren came together to start directing strategy through committees of correspondence. They would write letters to each other and confirm that they were all on the same page, ideologically and strategically. And then they would communicate those plans to each other to create sort of a nerve center of self-conscious ideology as opposed to a previous model of individual politicians serving their idea of virtue and also the social clique they were a member of. Instead, this is an idea of virtue collaboratively discovered through the process of writing and communicating to each other. And so that's how they were able to direct politics from the top. And the thing that really allowed them to see that power reinforced at the grassroots, the thing that gave them the votes to keep power and the votes to expand their numbers and the power to give other people in government the incentive to work with them was patronage and propaganda. Patronage because if you had the right committee assignments, if you had the right spots in the state government, you had the power to appoint local officials to office. Postal workers being one of the most important ones, but also things like the port collector of New York Harbor, which was one of the richest plums in the entire federal bureaucracy. At that point, almost all U.S. revenue that didn't come from land sales or excise tax came from a tariff that was mostly tallied in New York Harbor. And so whoever could appoint the collector of customs had a huge number of jobs and a huge amount of money that could be dangled in front of people's faces. Other jobs included things like justice of the peace, sheriffs, marshals, other state and local positions. And if you appoint those people, they owe their job to you and your faction. They're the reason that you have food to put on the table. And not only them, but their families will support your party. And their friends will support your party. People in the community will support your party because they feel taken care of. 
Uh, and then there's the propaganda arm getting to people at an ideological level, not just at the level of personal interest. This was affected through a quirk of early American law. Many state constitutions required the public printing of all declarations made by the government. If you passed a law or decree, it had to be put out to the public so that the people in the state would know what was going on. Transparency, they would call it now. <laughs> Transparency. And the way that this information was distributed was through contracting with a specific newspaper. And that contract would provide that paper with a steady stream of revenue from the state, independent of any subscriptions or advertising they might be selling. Uh, and that meant that these newspapers were able to print whatever they wanted in addition to the state declarations. And these were wildly partisan documents. So if a paper had the state printing contract, it would sort of as a quid pro quo, r repeat the ideological line being sold by the faction that had given them the contract. The paper that Van Buren's click relied on was the Albany Argus. And its editor, Jesse Green, was committed to the bucktail cause because his livelihood literally depended on it. Forgetting the fact that, of course, he was also on the same page ideologically. But once again, he can put whatever shit in the paper he wants and the rubes can read it. But the real structure here is an incentive to a cultural producer. He produces the things that don't say, hey, look, I'm getting paid to say this. He says the Constitution and plain Republican virtue require the support of Van Buren. And then maybe people read that and believe it. But it is, that is essentially how propaganda works, how a superstructure around a political agenda is generated. It is also just generally funny to imagine picking up like your Sunday times and flipping through to the new laws section like, oh, shit, new laws just dropped. Ooh, let me see these new laws. Hold on a minute. Above the knee breaches are banned in public display on Sundays. This is bullshit. Oh, that Marmaduke. What a rascal. Oh, hey, license required to hunt game east of the Hudson past November. Oh, those Albany crooks. Eventually, Van Buren and his buddies get the state on lock, especially by controlling the process of a constitutional convention that rewrote the New York State Constitution in 1821, setting into place a lot of reforms that were advantageous to their continued control of the state. They had things so unlocked that their opponents started calling them the Albany Regency. And there was a lot of these in the early Republic, uh, sprouting out around the same times. Not all of them had such regal names. They were usually just called the Juntos. You had the Richmond Junto in Virginia, the Essex Junto in Massachusetts, the Junto in New Hampshire, Junto in Delaware. And they were basically all of a kind. They were collections of young, hungry killers who were looking to create coherent power blocks to dominate state politics or to challenge existing power structures. The Albany Regency is also what I'm going to name my new alt-country band. <laughs> now, most of them were Democratic, Republican, and Jeffersonian in outlook. The Essex Junto was the, the nerve center of federalist power in the country, but everywhere else, they were all organizing around uh, the second most powerful group in every state, which tended to be the Jeffersonians, because federalism in the early republic was concentrating capital most significantly. So people at the top tended to be the federalist type folks. The next level would then therefore have popular support for people less well off than them to challenge federalists through the creation of a party structure because they didn't have old aristocratic control or capital to lean on. 
Uh, and just a reminder from the last episode, as we're talking about this, we are entering the era of good feelings again, where everything was Democrat Republican. It was all theoretically within one party. Yeah, a synthesized national party called the National Republicans that guys like John Quincy Adams were certain had put the ugly spat of the first party system uh behind the the republic lol but here we're already seeing the developing of different power structures within it yes so the same year they locked down power in albany and sort of as an end zone spike the state legislature elects well who is this martin van buren to the u.s senate (laughs) what a shock by now he was already being called the red fox of kinderhook and the little magician because of his sly control of the gears of power that have now brought him to national prominence Yeah, who could have called that he would get that position? Amazing. And in Washington, Van Buren begins the arduous task of trying to take that state machine he built in New York and connecting it to the other machines in other states to turn it into something that was not just a collection of self-interested blocks within states, but an overarching, disciplined, coherent political party. But if only there was some kind of figure that you could weld it to some kind of um yeah like ideas you know patronage that's okay like a beloved individual who could maybe serve as some kind of emotional repository yes we've already established a system with the first president where all of the contradictions within an emerging coalition are subsumed in a singular figure of martial virtue that allows them to surrender to him and if it worked once maybe it'll work again but on a more sectarian basis like a fractal repeat of the washingtonian subsumption well, I wonder if that'll happen. We'll see. We will see. Andrew Jackson hmm. spent the remainder of the 1810s acquiring slaves for his cotton plantations and occasionally invading Florida. Could not keep his hands off Florida. As one of the top military commanders of the region, Jackson was given vague orders to pacify conflicts from Seminole raids on the Florida-Georgia border. Jackson's idea for accomplishing this was essentially conquering Florida from the Spanish, which he set out to do. His two separate invasions created international issues for the Monroe administration. Uh, In addition to just unilaterally invading Spanish territory without a declaration of war, Jackson would go as far as to conduct military trials and just execute British agents working with the Seminoles. Yes, and during this time, uh, which was during the Monroe administration, the Secretary of State was little fancy lad John Quincy Adams, and I can assure you that he was very horrified by this entire thing. He found it grotesque that the government was allowing this to happen, and he was in favor of censoring Jackson. And I can imagine him with his little red fists going, that's not fair. No, you're breaking the rules. No, we don't have a war going on. You can't just invade Florida. He, it was like the meme. John Quincy Adams crying, shaved head, Wojak going, you can't invade Florida. And Jackson just going, ha, ha, ha. Frontier militia goes, brr. Yes, Frontier Militia does indeed go burr. Jackson's actions. Action Jackson's actions. Action Jackson's actions eventually helped lead the spit to the Spanish selling Florida to the U.S. in 1821. So guess what? The Spanish sold Florida. I was right all along. I got you fucking Florida. Yeah, what are you complaining about? We get results. Stop whining. Now there's a place for all our retirees to go to and our boy bands to come from. In 1822, Jackson accepted the Tennessee legislature's nomination for president. Though he was initially only being put forward to spoil the candidacy of Treasury Secretary William H. Crawford, and so far, Treasury Secretary William H. Crawford takes the number one spot for guy I did not expect to have to talk about so much. Uh, Jackson quickly established a vibrant national constituency. His anti-bank positions found tremendous popularity in the wake of the Panic of 1819, 
while moderate positions on other issues like the tariff allowed him to appear above sectional divisions. And just like he was the man, he was this frontier hero who had raised himself up from nothing, a guy who had appeared to be a tough, ornery man of the people, a symbolic refutation of the Virginia dynasty that had reigned for 20 years. We covered the election of 1824 and the corrupt bargain last episode, but to recap, Jackson won the plurality of both the electoral and popular votes, but without making a simple majority. So the election was thrown to a contingent election in the House of Representatives where John Quincy Adams was declared president. Jackson was furious and basically immediately began running for president in the 1828 election. But this time he hooks up with a little guy who is able to supercharge his whole deal. The little magician himself, Martin Van Buren. Because when Martin Van Buren went to the Senate in 1821, it was with an eye to make friends in high places. He came here to make friends. Absolutely. Uh, He came there to make friends. He understood that relationships were power. In a period where ideology really was transient and up in the air, there were a few hot-button issues that separated people, like the tariff. But within that, there was a lot of room to move if you were willing to move, which Van Buren was, because ideology always came second to him to power. Because he didn't have a military record, or charisma. He didn't have the vast wealth that had propelled others to power in America. He didn't have a family name like John Quincy Adams. My God, he didn't even speak English growing up. What he had was the ability to harness the power of what those earlier Republicans called factions. And all of them would have hated Van Buren and considered him a fucking traitor because he was literally the demon, the warp warping the true timber of American democracy by pushing people away from the answering their most virtuous selves and going towards a grotesque notion of party interest overwhelming individual perspective of course in reality van buren is just recognizing the system as as it was left to him by these guys who could not confront the fundamental contradictions at the center of their political project van buren born later less committed to the notions is able to see them more clearly and so he goes to washington to build up a party uh i just want to see if you agree with this from what i've read i i think you could even say that van buren was of the opinion that party factionality had its own virtue to it that it was a way to overcome more fundamental contradictions yes that is the other side of it he he was not just a snickering cynic though Washingtonian types might have seen him that way. Everybody is justified in their own mind, and in Van Buren's mind, this is a recognition of a system as it was presented to them, not the system the founders believed that they were creating. And of course, he was demystified by that because he didn't build the fucking thing. He just had to live in it. And in this world, if you want to have a thing that if you want a thing to happen, then the best way in the system as it existed was to get other people on the same page and fucking work from a coherent position to try to move in that direction. Because that's the levers of power as they existed. And he was right. You could only pursue any kind of political virtue by working together with the structures and discipline and coordination of a party apparatus. The thing that was horrifying, that is horrifying to our notions of democracy, is the degree to which we're in denial about how the system works. And he even felt that the party apparatus was a way to transcend the sectional conflicts that were for the entire 19th century on the verge of ripping the country apart. That if you could just get everybody to have a party, then you could transcend these base geographic sectionality through ideology and not develop the situation where everybody in the South wanted to kill everybody in the North and vice versa for the entire time. Exactly. So if this is what the speci- this is why the specific nature of the party structure that he was trying to build when he came to Washington was an ally was a restating of the old alliance from the colonial days between New York and Virginia. New York and Virginia had deeply intertwined economies. You could even argue that the fact that Virginia is so close to New York is why Virginians essentially made up the first 
entire first rank of Southern contributors to the constitutional order because they were part of a project that more remote Southerners were more alienated from. And over time, that alliance had been frayed by the conflicts that had come over the years, the building sectional tension as the South and North move apart in their political economies. And Van Buren saw that the old idea of people operating for their virtues was going to push against the coherence of the country. So he saw an alliance, a renewal of an alliance between the parties in Virginia and New York that could create transcendent politics that would keep America bound together. And of course, that meant that he was completely committed to letting the baby have its bottle when it came to slavery. Van Buren was first and foremost a slavery accommodationist. The song James K. Polk by They Might Be Giants claims that Van Buren was an abolitionist. That's absolutely ridiculous. Not for his entire life was he an abolitionist. We are calling out the historiography of They Might Be Giants. We are holding the Giants accountable. Swear to God, it has bothered me for years. He was not for a minute of his life an abolitionist. Abolitionism meant you wanted to see slavery abolished. Not that he wanted to see its extension curtailed for even when he was running at this free so- Never mind. That's a tangent. We will get to that. For Martin Van Buren, a former president and an abolitionist. So Van Buren was happy to allow slavery to continue in the South so that he could build a party together. And he was creating a coalition of northern political leaders whose self-interest could be yoked together to the self-interest of the rising political power in Virginia to create a new power. And it makes sense that Van Buren from New York was looking to found it, even though historically Virginia had been the wellspring of all the political talent, as it were, because by the time Van Buren is in Washington, the economic relationship between the two states had reversed. Virginia, which had been the most populous, most economically prosperous state of the two at the time of the founding of the country, uh, had seen its growth slow. It's Piedmont soil, where tobacco plantations had been uh active for at this point generations exhausted its economic output was weakening meanwhile new york was only growing more powerful it had surpassed virginia in population its economy was growing it made sense that a figure who was going to try to resuscitate the new york virginia political alliance would come from the more economically dynamic state which was new york by then van buren goes to washington to do just this and he starts by making friends like john c calhoun and at that time senator andrew jackson and he also makes a lot of friends among the wives of his <laughs> friends in congress van buren by this point was a widower and a bachelor and he loved to call on in writing and in person the wives of different political figures in washington mostly his allies and he would carry on flirtatious correspondences <laughs> with married women and somehow this was endearing to people even though one of his colleagues lewis mclean had to write a letter to him asking him to stop mailing his wife do not mail my wife do not mail my wife sir so one of the big parts of van buren's project in washington is to find a candidate to back in 1824 while he's helping to make sure that van- john quincy adams attempt to maintain his fantasy of a post-partisan system is destroyed so he's working in the Senate to make sure that the Adams agenda is a dead letter, even though these guys are all technically national Republicans. He's destroying the fantasy of postpartisanship right there on the floor of the Senate. And he did, as we talked about, he thought that there was something unseemly about this pretension of transcending partisanship. And he was slicing through it with a Ginsu knife. Uh, something unseemly, maintaining the fantasy of power that was obviously untrue. Yes. So he was looking for someone to back to run against Quincy Adams in 24. Now, he knew it wasn't going to be him. He didn't have the charisma or the pedigree to do it. But the person who fit the bill, a Southerner who was connected to a Southern political faction that could then be welded to the Albany Regency, was 
That guy we mentioned earlier, Treasury Secretary William Crawford. Crawford probably wouldn't have been who Van Puren would have picked if he'd had his choice, because not only was Crawford old and less charismatic and less personally popular than previous Virginia dynasty leaders, he also had a stroke during the campaign, which <laughs> left him debilitated and made it difficult for him to press his own case. But for Van Buren, he didn't have a choice. But Crawford did eventually get better, right? But like around the 1824 election, he was basically immobile. Yeah, that did not help. And he was already <laughs> an older guy. And it showed that the Virginia political dynasty was exhausted. He was the fourth Michael Keaton in multiplicity. But Van Buren was stuck with him because he was the only Southerner running. Jackson, although he was a slave-owning planter, was a Westerner. And yes, he was only put in there to throw spokes into the wheels of Crawford's campaign. So with no one else to fit the role that Van Buren was looking for, for someone to fashion a national party around, he was forced to try to drag Crawford's ass across the finish line. And when the vote in New York was inconclusive, Van Buren tried first in the state Senate and then in the House to get the New York delegations to keep Crawford viable. But because Crawford ended up being a distant third in the New York vote, he ended up getting out-hustled by John Quincy Adams' point man in New York, Thurlow Weed. Thurlow Weed. Thurlow Weed. Astor. We will be talking about more about Thurlow Weed uh, next week because he is a pretty important character uh, in New York politics. So this is really the first big defeat for the Albany Regency when John Quincy Adams gets New York's precious and crucial electoral votes to put him over the top. Thurlow Weed was essentially <laughs> the closest thing to a rival, an antithesis to Van Buren's thesis of a coherent Democratic Party in New York. And that failure, it wasn't great for Van Buren, and it undermined his power in the short term. But that's okay, because as soon as it gets down, he gets back up again and starts looking for someone to support in 1828. By 1828, Jackson was known nationally as an imposing war hero. But personally, he was a mess. He had spent years fighting his chronic dysentery with watered-down gin and heroic doses of calomel, which I had to look up. It's basically like powdered mercury, which had completely rotted out his teeth. Uh, the dueling bullet lodged in his chest had given him chronic coughing spells, which brought up, in Jackson's own words, quote, great quantities of slime. <laughs> Oh, gross. Yes, one of the most disgusting things I've heard doing this pod so far. The other dueling bullet lodged in his arm gave him osteomyelitis, which is like a bone infection. He had rheumatism and chronic headaches. He was just an absolute train wreck of a guy, but it was his moment. Though Van Buren was working behind the scenes to erect this new party apparatus with Jackson on top to advance his ideological go goals, the election of 1828 was mostly a personal affair. Campaigning was centered around Adams supporters accusing Jackson of being a slave-driving bigamist, and Jackson supporters accusing Adams of being a corrupt gambler who had procured whores for Tsar Alexander. My favorite detail is the publication of a new journal just simply called Truth's Advocate and Monthly Anti-Jackson Expositor. We need to bring that back. Just put the shit right in the title so you know what you're dealing with yes now uh these sorts of things have goofy titles uh with like cheeky references to drug kingpins <laughs> anyway however vicious the mudslinging jackson easily won he positively destroyed the competition securing an electoral victory of 178 to 83 and dominating the west and the south booyakasha booyakasha indeed Populism.
Beyond becoming a rallying point for cultural energy, the symbol of increasing democratization of the electorate, Jackson was the tip of the spear for the second coherent party system. A union of the Jeffersonian yeoman farmers and urban proletariat wielded through Van Buren's democratic machines. Now united in committed opposition to the power of finance, banks, and capital represented by the rump of the old national Republican elites. So Jackson's in office. Andrew Jackson, old hickory, virile spirit of the West, champion of the people's will. He was sworn in on March 4th, 1829. And after the aforementioned raucous inauguration night, he promptly set himself to the hard work of executing the people's will in obsessing over the personal lives of his secretary's wives. Jackson's beloved wife, Rachel, had died suddenly at the tail end of the election. He was distraught and incidentally blamed it at least partially on the vicious attacks on his marriage received from Adam's supporters. Perhaps his emotional bereavement explains why Jackson spent an inordinate amount of time in his first few years in office fretting over the social lives of his cabinet secretaries and their wives. Matt, do you want to tell us about the Petticoat Affair? Okay, so Washington, D.C. at this point, it's a small town, you could say. This town, right? piss town more like it you could fit everybody in charge in a cloakroom that meant that personal relationships were very important and jackson being a irascible old sentimental man had a very hard time of it when his war secretary james eaton's wife peggy was spurned by the rest of the wives of his cabinet including and in fact led by the wife of his vice president john c calhoun Peggy Eaton had been a tavern wench who'd been married to a naval officer and had scandalized Washington, D.C. by carrying out pretty public affairs while he was out of town, including with James Eaton. And eventually, when the husband conveniently died, she married James Eaton. But none of the fine timber of Washington society would dare be seen with her or see, have her invited to their homes. The ritual of social obligation and rotating dinner parties and hostings was denied her. She was not invited. No one brought her their calling card to her home this is just like in vanderpump when katie and lala didn't invite billy lee to girls night in that's exactly what it was like and it hurt her very badly she had and she had a very intimate relationship with andrew jackson not sexually more of a daughter relationship and he got very mad on her behalf and he started badgering the rest of his cabinet into having her over for dinner and it led to him using cabinet meetings to just plead her case and defend her virtue and honor in front of his stone-faced <laughs> ministers and trying to suborn them into being her friend and they just wouldn't do it or maybe their wives wouldn't let them do it and this was where Martin Van Buren was able to ingratiate himself. He had been uh, elected governor of New York, uh, but then had accepted a position as Jackson's secretary of state. Uh, and he was a bachelor at that point because he, like Jackson, was a widower. And that meant he was free to invite over the Eatons and ha go over to the Eatons house and, and, be, and play charades and do Uno. <laughs> and... That endeared him to Jackson, and the entire affair ended up consuming a vast amount of his actual Jackson's actual attention during his first year of office. My favorite detail is just the, the, the raw explicitness of it. Jackson infamously called official cabinet meetings where the only agenda item was Mrs. Eaton, <laughs> and apparently at various points just hollering, hollering to his secretaries, she's as chaste as a virgin. It's very funny. 
and in a way it's very shades of, of Trump and Trump notoriously had Jackson as one of his guys yeah uh, you know the person who ran on being invigorate the reinvigorated will of the people in Washington and just being consumed with all this petty gossip uh, you know I'm just reminded of all those Trump tweets like Victoria's secret reps were very nasty to Kate Upton and now she's doing great I'm just imagining yeah. you know uh, Jackson being like uh, the war secretary is being very nasty to Miss, Mrs. Eden but I hear she's a wonderful <laughs> lady so this all culminated with Jackson sacking almost his entire cabinet and governing mostly with the advice of what became known as the Kitchen Cabinet, an informal group of advisors headed by Martin Van Buren. Jackson's terms were dominated by this succession of crises. And the first I want to cover is the nullification crisis. In 1828, Congress had passed a new tariff, sometimes referred to as the Tariff of Abominations, setting extremely high tariff rates and precipitating a sectional crisis. Southern states vehemently opposed the tariff, which would make northern goods more expensive and southern cotton more difficult to sell. It was necessary for the development of capital through fostering the creation of American industry, even as it worked against the yeoman farmers. As this crisis brews, it's time to introduce one of the absolute demons of this era. So, Matt, who is John C. Calhoun and what was nullification? John C. Calhoun, at that point, uh, vice president, but he would also serve as secretary of state and uh one of the, the lions of the Senate during this period was the mind of the Southern planter class, the most eloquent and strategically gifted exponent of the slave driver rule in the Americas. And as such, he got to go down. He gets to go down as one of the real creeps of American history. Uh, and at this point, he was in his mind charting a course to the White House, building a power base among Southern planters. He had been John Quincy Adams vice president and had also been chosen to be Jackson's vice president. And as tariff resistance grows in the South, Calhoun, from his position as vice president, begins to articulate a theory of nullification, which says that state governments are allowed by the Constitution to essentially decide which federal government laws that they will follow. Because according to that theory, uh, states are the final and actual depositories of power. The federal government has power lent to it by the states uh, and all federal authority ends up being at the discretion of state government authority. And this was an attempt led by South Carolina to ignore the tariff and declare it to be invalid. And so in reaction to that, uh, this becomes quite a crisis. And Jackson basically threatens at various times to send troops to enforce the tariff in South Carolina. Uh, I like this quote from a Jackson ally in the South about possibly mustering a militia in support of Jackson's pro-tariff actions. Quote, given two weeks time, he said, they could muster enough troops at the state border to, quote, piss enough to float the whole nullifying crew of South Carolina into the Atlantic. <laughs> Damn. Uh, at that time, Jackson, also a slave owner and all originally from South Carolina, uh, but of course grew his power base in Tennessee, which was considered part of the West. And the West was much more interested in internal improvements and specifically in the, in the creation of domestic markets and domestic industry because the West made its money trading with the cities of the North, whereas plantation cotton was mostly shipped directly to Europe or maybe to New York, then to Europe from coastal ports internalized the financial infrastructure and physical infrastructure were less important to them but in the west those kind of things were crucial to economic development so jackson represented a slave-owning elite that was also interested in building a domestic infrastructure to create markets and that meant that jackson was even though on other issues might have been in agreement with calhoun a staunch nationalist who believed 
We have a country now. There were states, but when they made the pact to form a union, they were making a pact to create a transcendent power that they would have to obey, even if they didn't get their way on narrow points, as long as they were decided democratically. And it really is the beginning of the end of the South as an independent political uh, social political power, because those two opinions are going to get more and more dominant in the two halves of the country, and the southern half is going to keep shrinking, which is why they got so fixed on expanding slave territory. So this whole thing goes back and forth. There's a compromise tariff introduced by John Quincy Adams, who's already back in Congress in 1832, and that goes nowhere, and Calhoun eventually resigns as Jackson's Veep. Yeah, it's tough to stay uh, in good terms after your president threatens to hang you from a lamppost. <laughs> it would certainly be an indication that the relationship had soured enough that you should probably get out of there. A little awkward. <laughs> Uh, there's another compromise tariff in 1833. Uh, that one is coupled with a force bill, a bill to allow Jackson to use military force to enforce the tariff. And this also is the beginning of an alliance between John C. Calhoun and Henry Clay that will pay off in a few more years. But the whole tariff is another example of this early 19th century will to kick the can down the road. The premise that this fundamental sectional conflict built on competing modes of production was somehow resolvable through compromise or goodwill or perhaps even the virtuous discussion between opposing parties. And to exemplify all that, the real kicker on all of this was South Carolina Convention that eventually met to accept the final compromise tariff uh, at that very same time nullified the force bill saying the president couldn't enforce the tariff. Yes, they're, 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 they basically said, okay, fine. We'll, we'll shut up for now, but we reserve the right in the future to nullify your ass. Just kind of undermines the whole idea that in a virtuous compromise here. Yes on the point, no you're still not our dad, and no we still don't have to do what you said. The Democratic Party held its first nominating convention in 1832. And uh, as a side note, the uh, Democratic Party now kicks off its nomination process with caucuses in Iowa, where they have the Jefferson Jackson dinner every four years. Uh, they should really call it the Van Buren dinner. Absolutely. I mean, what are you? You're a political party. How do you think of yourselves? You think of yourselves as, a, as the hero who we use as a figurehead? No, the ideological mastermind, the, the heart and the brain. Seriously. They say, we're a political party, right? What do we imagine ourselves to be? We think of ourselves as the mind who created us and then the, the figurehead that, we, that represented it. But all of that stuff is gone. All that's left is the actual shell, the party structure that has persisted as the longest-lived uh, party in American history, and that was created by Van Buren. You guys are Van Buren's dudes. It's Van Buren's structure you still have. How many of the values of Jefferson and Jackson do you still hold? Oh, my God. Can you imagine Jackson's values at the Democratic dinner and, and talking about how much modern Democrats love them? It's honestly amazing that Jackson's name hasn't been held accountable and canceled right off the place settings at that thing. Yeah, and... uh you know, Van Buren thought he had real political values, and a lot of those would be anathema as well, but his overarching value was the maintenance of a party structure, which is why you're able to have a dinner in the first place. So lay it down for Martin Van Buren. Thank you very much. MVB, the MVP of the Democratic Party. Mm -hmm. The Democratic Party held its first nominating convention in 1832, selecting Jackson for president and Van Buren for vice president. Henry Clay was the nominee of the National Republicans. 
We've touched on Henry Clay a bit. I just mentioned him and his alliance with Calhoun, but perhaps it's a good time to sketch him out because he really is one of the loser heroes of the 19th century. Not to say that he's personally heroic, but that he did a heroic amount of losing. Just kept taking L's. Yes, he really uh, puts his back into taking a tremendous amount of L's. And with the contest between Jackson and Clay, it's time to travel a long time ago to a financial system far, far away to the bank wars. Yes, Jackson versus Clay. Battle between Westerners, Tennessean and the Kentuckian, over the center of gravity of American power. The West held the balance at that point between the South and North, and Clay versus Jackson is essentially which wagon the West is going to hitch itself to. And Jackson won big time. He destroyed Clay in the election. And as soon as he gets in, they start fussing over the banks. And Henry Clay from Kentucky, another slave owner, but a man even more invested in the notion of internally improving the American infrastructure and its financial instruments to allow for the development of the interior. This gets him to create a concept known as the American system, which is floating money in the form of debt in order to fund the building of canals and roads, facilitate trade, and maintaining a tariff to protect domestic industry. We went over the details of the American system in the last episode, but yes, he is still championing it. So it's all gaining coherence now. The Bank of the United States, which again needed to be rechartered uh, by Madison after, oops, he realized that it was probably a bad idea not to have a national (laughs) bank during a war. was up for recharter in 1832, and Henry Clay was at the forefront of the attempt to get it recharter. While Jackson, even though he had not really talked about the bank as much of an issue in the election, he had now found the question of the bank chartering to be his issue. So the Bank of the United States, it's a private institution with a one-fifth share owned by the government, acting as the government's agent, holding deposits, transferring federal funds within the country, and holding tax receipts. It had branches throughout the country, and they were all exempt from taxation. Its actual directors were private stockholders, of whom there were over 4,000. And even though this mechanism had been how America was at that point being developed, how money was being circulated, how the system was allowing the country to develop an economy, it was also an alienated structure that held power over people's lives and determined their fate. And it was the sort of thing that the revolution was, in the minds of many, fought to prevent. Every man a baron was the promise of the American Revolution, and having a bank to be the final arbiter of financial questions is not freedom in the way that many of these people understood it. The plain folk, the plain Republicans that Van Buren hoped to ally with the planters of the South, who of course had their own self-interest in opposing a national financial system. So Jackson's populism, which was very much, when he was elected, wrapped up in his image, found an articulation and ideology through opposition to this bank, to the idea of the government being connected to finance because to these people the real source of value was good old specie that is gold and silver which had an objective measurement that transcended any of the subjective and personally motivated decisions of a group of shareholders at some bank somewhere and the culmination of american freedom would be the destruction of the banking system and the replacement of it with good old-fashioned circulating gold because at that point there is no such thing as u.s currency the united states government does not issue a centralized money banks like the bank of the united states are chartered and given the right to issue currency that could be redeemed in gold if it was brought to a location it essentially allowed people to increase the money supply beyond the actual amount of gold that was in a place because they could put out more bills than they had in gold 
because as long as they stayed in circulation, the bank could keep lending out more than they actually had. It facilitated economic activity, but it also depleted people's sense of their own control over their lives. And Jackson took this issue as his populist cudgel against the Eastern banking interests. And we have to bring up one of the all-time great Jackson quotes. Uh, Van Buren, returning from a diplomatic post overseas, uh, returns to find Jackson in one of his bouts of ill health, just wraith-like, wheezing in the White House, calling Van Buren over, and in his ill health, explaining to him, the bank, Mr. Van Buren, is trying to kill me, but I will kill it. Motherfucker thought a bank was going to kill him. Clearly, some of that lead in his body was getting to his brain. He was actually worried that a bank was going to murder him. Uh, the spirit of the bank had invaded his sleeping chambers like the, the Stannis shadow ghost in Game of Thrones, uh, magically inflaming his maladies. But I would also like to quote, uh, just to pull all the things Matt was saying um, together, a fairly lengthy thing from the end of Jackson's veto. So the Congress reauthorizes the bank charter. Jackson vetoes the bank, and his veto is a fiery diatribe against it. It wraps up by saying, quote, Distinctions in society will always exist under every government. The quality of talents, of education, or of wealth cannot be produced by human institutions. In the full enjoyment of the gifts of heaven and the fruits of superior industry, economy, and virtue, every man is equally entitled to protection by law. But when the laws undertake to add these natural and just advantages, artificial distinctions to grant titles, gratuities, and exclusive privileges to make the rich richer and the potent more powerful, the humble members of society, the farmers, mechanics, and laborers who have neither the time nor means of securing the like favors to themselves have a right to complain of the injustices of their government. So he vetoes the bank. Booyakasha. Booyakasha, indeed, again. And this leads in its own way to a consolidation of power against him. Nicholas Biddle, the manager of the bank, a man who is referred to by his contemporaries as literally Moloch. Yes, uh, Biddle is a incarnation of the banker stereotype, a cartoon character, a, a aristocratic fancy demon. Uh, and a lot of his actions uphold what Jackson is saying. He uses bank funds because it's a private institution to fund anti-Jackson campaigning directly. He purposely contracts credit to cause a recession, basically proving Jackson to be right about the anti-democratic nature of this institution. But eventually Jackson wins. The court of public opinion is on his side and hey, new character, James K. Polk, chair of the House Ways and Means Committee, says the bank ought not to be rechartered. But from Clay and Company's defeat rose the phoenix of a new party. Jackson's aggressive expansion of executive power against the bank were a rallying cry for his opposition. He represented a consolidation of executive power as well as the totalizing democratization of the polity. And to his detractors, he had become King Andrew I. As the Boston Daily Advertiser and Patriot said, quote, the spirit of Jacksonianism is Jacobinism. Its alpha is anarchy, and its omega is despotism. Through Jackson's consolidation of the yeoman farmers and the workmen into a coherent political bloc, a coherent opposition was also able to form among financiers, professionals, a developing middle class. Arranged around figures like Clay, they named themselves for those who opposed the prerogatives of the 17th century king of England, the Whigs. Yes, and he's considered ironic for the Whigs to call them the, the Whigs, a party essentially of finance, calling themselves after the anti-monarchist party, 
when they're arrayed against a popular democracy that has a grassroots support among the plain people of the country. But it really makes sense because they were naming themselves after a party in England, the Whigs, who had been the party of the emergent merchant class. Uh, the Tories, who they arrayed themselves against in England, were the party of the kingly prerogatives, which really meant they were the party of large landowners. And that is what we have here. The Whigs, the party of merchants, and the democracy, uh, the party of land. Even though now, of course, because it's American context, uh, they did not get their authority from God or King Arthur or whoever the English king and his uh, barons imagined themselves to, to get their authority, but from some idea of a popular will. Uh, but at the top, it's still the party of large landowners, specifically large southern landowners. And so it is a recreation of that system, but with things flipped because the American political system was created in reaction to the British one. So now we have Whigs and we have a king and we have a battle over authority, whether it is vested in a combination of the people in small letters plus financial institutions and big letters or the people as the democracy would imagine it. Because the specie fixation of the radical Democrats was based on an ideological fantasy that the value of gold is objective. And it's not political in the way that a state-issued or a bank-issued certificate is. Of course, we know that all currency derives its value from the political system's ability to enforce the transaction and nothing else. Gold is picked precisely because it allows for a political mystification to occur where we can imagine it to be objective. Uh, right. I mean, whether it's a, uh, a banknote or a shiny rock, the value is backed uh, by some kind of system of force um, enforcing it. <laughs> yes. Of course, they either didn't want to admit that to themselves or it didn't occur to them, which is always some combination of the two when you get ideological coherence to emerge. And what it meant was that for the plain Republicans of the country, the most radical position is one where there's almost no real money in circulation, and therefore the sort of economic advancement that is at the heart of the American project is almost impossible. But that was the requirement of their ideological commitment, which is why they had to have the conflict with the Whigs, to try to power the necessary progress without making them confront the reality of the system that they are within. This is how political ideology cloaks the mechanisms of power conflict that actually move the wheel. I want to move on to the Van Buren presidency, but we can't move on from Jackson without talking about Indian removal. Yes. So we are talking about one half of the democratic vision of freedom in America. One half of it is no banks and hard money. But of course, as I said, that means lower levels of economic activity and development. How are you supposed to pursue your vaunted yeoman freedom if you can't advance your economic position? And the answer is the other side of democratic vision of freedom, which is westward expansion and the removal of Native Americans wherever white settlement is encroaching on them. And during the Jackson administration, the flashpoint of that is in Georgia, where Native American tribes who had established treaty rights to portions of that state had created civilized institutions that impressed many Northern Whigs with a degree of, of advancement and, and recognizable uh, sort of uh, Europeanism of them. They were able to see a lot of these Native Americans as actual people or closer to actual people than they had ever seen them before. But that didn't mean anything to the local whites in Georgia who wanted the land. Right. By the 1820s, tribes like the Cherokee had established semi-sovereign nations with like written constitutions and Supreme Courts. Those kinds of institutions that appealed to the Whiggish imagination of what it meant to be, quote, civilized. But the other big populist push, the other end of it, the culture war, you might say, is a drive to accelerate Indian removal, even in the face of adverse Supreme Court decisions that support Native American treaty rights. Famously, Jackson said, Judge Marshall has made his ruling, now let him enforce it. Now, obviously, you can be horrified by that at a constitutional level, but once again, I'm sorry, 
It's kind of ballsy. That was the other half. The pursuit of America's expansion westward and its domestic Indian removal to give land to make up for that lack of currency and that lack of economic development. It's time for this episode's deployment of the sound drop. It's free real estate. It's free real estate. So those are the two halves of the Southwestern inflected Jacksonian notion of American economic expansion that were in keeping with their notions of Republican virtue. And the Whigs became the party, not just of banks and finance, but also of slowing down westward expansion and over time, more and more respecting Native American treaty rights. And so Jackson's presidency comes to an end. He had won most of the battles that he had fought. At a moment of seeming success, seeming prosperity, seeming positive execution of his political model, he hands off the reins of the country to his chosen successor. The guy who had wired it all for him to succeed so wildly from the beginning. It's Martin Van Buren's time. Time in the big seat. Martin Van Buren ran in 1836 as Jackson's successor and again won easily as the still-fledgling Whig party split its vote between four candidates. Van Buren time, baby. After working his whole life to build a national party, one network of coherent ideals welded to a figure of immense national popularity like Andrew Jackson. Fresh off a string of stunning ideological victories on the tariff nullification, the goddamn Bank of the United States, now he's in control and ready to rock. And just in time... For the panic of 1837, the dismantling of the Bank of the United States had its consequences and Van Buren paid for them. Matt, Van Buren is your boy. What is the tragedy of his presidency? So I don't want to give the impression that the rulers of the United States were in a conspiracy to make everyone believe gold was the only real value. This was a premise that was uh, insisted upon by the fact that the most advanced capitalist country in the world at that point, the United Kingdom, our number one trading partner, was backing all trade in gold species. So that meant that for America to be part of a trade network, it also needed to have species as the basis of its currency. And I shouldn't say species because species is just the fungible form. Gold is what I mean. So if the United States was going to trade with England and therefore the rest of the world, at that point, global trade was headquartered in London. It had to use gold. NFG, non-fungible gold brick. And in 1837, in fact, on the day of Van Buren's inauguration, a British bank started calling in their money. The bank had grown leery of how much money was going out because while the United States was still importing more from Europe than they were exporting to it, the money from those transactions was staying in the United States in the form of investments in internal improvements and canals that the United States government wasn't paying for. Uh, That lack of public money was filled by private money in the form of a lot of European loans. So that gold was staying in the country. And because the banks at that point were always a little worried about having their gold called upon at a time when they didn't have enough in the till, these English banks started calling some of that money back. The banking institutions of England started calling the money back from the banks they had lent it to in America. And those tills were empty. They had been lending far beyond their reserves. And so one of the trading houses in New York on Van Buren's inaugural closed its doors and suspended payment, which led to a chain reaction of bank panics, whereby everybody thinks there's no money, no actual gold. So they all go to replace their banknotes with gold. And if everybody does that and there's no money to do it with, because as I said, there is more banknotes in circulation than there was actual gold in reserve. That is a nice summary of these panics, and it's important since these things happen constantly in the 19th century. 1819, 1837, 1857, 1873, 1893. Basically, every 20 years, there's panic on the streets of New York. Panic on the streets of New York.
it's so funny because a lot of modern day gold bugs claim that a return to the gold standard would bring with it economic stability. But the only time we've had anything close to a gold standard in this country, it was, yes, a guaranteed 20-year cycle of massive depression. <laughs> so this leads to a de- huge destruction in value because all these banknotes went from being worth their equivalent in gold to being worth nothing. And the size of the collapse happened in part because the policy of replacing the central depository of the Bank of the United States with deposits in regional banks, all of which were parts of patriotic networks when the Jackson political machine. And it's important to recognize that even though this might be a populist movement, it's not being headed by real populists. It's being headed by people close to power in their respective states. And so all of those, they were called pet banks, were getting federal revenue. And by the way, at the same time, the United States had retired its debt that it had accumulated since the War of 1812, and thanks to big receipts from Western land sales, had a huge national budget surplus. And that surplus was distributed to the states through their banking institutions, which led to a huge explosion in distribution of currency, the thing that Andrew Jackson hated. And so this network of pet banks could no longer meet their obligations, and the economy essentially ground to a halt. Now, Van Buren is caught in a perfectly ironic trap during his presidency because he had built a political system and a political party and was able to use it to overcome the fact that he was a hillbilly Dutchman who had no (laughs) military record to become the first sort of non-heroic president, the first person who had no lineage connection to the revolution in any way. Uh, And he had done it purely through a party. But that party was built in the context of the go-go 1830s when the economy was growing at leaps and bounds and everybody was making money and everybody could essentially afford to insist on very hardcore ideologies because it didn't matter anyway. Everybody was making out. And once the panic happens, there's nothing in that political coalition, ideologically or in terms of regional interests that are knitted together to bring about a meaningful response to the crisis. So Van Buren spent his presidency trying to find some things to rally around to keep not only the party together, but to keep it viable for the public. And he was able to do the one, but at the cost of the other. He was able to put together a package of split-the-baby reforms that gave some things to people who were in favor of banks, others to people who were in favor of hard money. But then he ended up getting caught and spending his entire term, when he wasn't carrying out Jackson's Indian removal policy and the Trail of Tears, a huge moral blot on his character, He fixated on the idea of creating an independent treasury, which would not be a shareholder bank like the Bank of the United States, but that would hold all U.S. deposits in the name of the treasury and would be in the minds of the Democrats finally be the thing that removed the government from the economy once and for all and removed the specter of centralized authority over banking. But that took his entire term. It was a subject of endless fights in the Senate, having to make deals to try to get back in the good graces of John C. Calhoun, and then dealing with Calhoun's pig-headed fixation on making slavery part of every goddamn discussion, no matter what else was going on. And finally, he was able to get past an authorization for an independent treasury. But this entire time, since the end of the charter under Jackson, the treasury had already been holding tax reserves, so it didn't actually change anything. He ended up only being able to fixate on a surface-level fix because the ideology and interests of the party could not respond to the crisis. They believed government shouldn't do things. They believed the government doing something was unconstitutional. And you had the economy collapse and a hard-money orthodoxy that meant you couldn't issue currency to try to get the economy going again. So he spent his entire term powerless. This man who had wrangled the powers of the earth to his whim, once he gets in office, conditions change, and he is essentially unable to deal with the change in conditions.
So it goes. Van Buren, despite his mastery at marshalling democratic forces to political power, simply could not overcome an economic collapse. Yes, and you know whose presidency it resembles in its frantic powerlessness? John Quincy Adams. Oh, I thought you were going to say George W. H. W. Bush. No, his was different. He got a lot of stuff done. It's just that he fucking lost because the financial collapse came at the end. Yeah, the, the bill came due at the end of the dinner. It's just, you know, when you say, you know, which president this reminds me of, I can always put safe money on guessing either Martin Van Buren or H.W. <laughs> yes, but anyway, Quincy Adams and Van Buren are poleaxed by reality. One of them thinking parties were a thing of the past. One of them thinking parties were the only reality of American politics, and neither of them could handle the moment when it hit them. Constrained by an ideology of his own invention, there was just no way to counter the panic. Time had passed him by. As the election song of the time goes, Van, Van, he's a used up man. Brutal. And so we come to the election of 1840. It's time for the Whigs to step onto the national stage in a real way. Presumably, Henry Clay would be their nominee, but he does not get it. Yes. At this point, the Whigs realized that they needed a little bit of that democratic magic. It was one thing to have a nice, coherent ideology and an enemy, but you also need a figurehead. And Henry Clay, because he was a real politician, he didn't make a great one. He had done the corrupt bargain. The taint. The taint followed. So much taint. Now, William Henry Harrison, old Tippecanoe, hero of the Indian Wars, was sort of the Whig version of Jackson, who could be a a front piece And in one of the most significant political blunders of all time, this is a place where Clay fucks himself. We talked about how he was a big loser and how even though he's one of the most influential political figures of the period, he was not able to become president. Many of that was due to his own mistakes. Obviously, accepting the corrupt bargain is one. The other, though, is turning down the vice presidency when it was offered to him in 1840 in a fit of pique. Because he had gone to the Whig convention assuming he would be the nominee, or at least hoping to be, but the forces around Harrison cohered, and when he was offered the VP as a consolation prize, and even though William Henry Harrison was 67 years old, the oldest man to run for president at that point, he turned it down. So instead, the Whigs gave the VP spot to John Tyler, a Southerner and a nullifier who had opposed Jackson mostly on the issue of national authority. He had no investment in the Whig platform, which would be a major disaster in the coming administration, but we will talk about that. Yeah, well, I mean, it's a good thing that William Henry Harrison would, you know, famously live to serve his entire term and everything so that Henry Clay would not come to regret not taking the VP spot. Yeah, no, no, smooth sailing for him. Yes. And so Harrison is the Whig nominee in 1840. To even push that whole populist frontier general thing even further, this is basically the invention of the modern political campaign. Uh, They would build little log cabins to exemplify Harrison's frontier upbringing and move them around. Uh, They would even put live raccoons inside their model cabins to make them extra frontier homey. And Harrison was the first person to campaign on his own behalf, giving speeches to crowds, which was unheard of beforehand for a presidential candidate. He would uh, put a barrel labeled hard cider next to him and he would take little dramatic sips out of it in the middle of the campaign speeches just to hammer home that he was a real good old boy, a man of the people. Uh, The way it's described is is very like pro wrestling to me, like right in the middle of a sentence, taking a dramatic pause. You could almost imagine the announcer going, is he folks? I I think he is. He is. He's going for the cider and everybody in the crowd going nuts. (laughs) 
it took uh, it took very little to entertain folks in the 1840s absolutely and he was running against martin van buren who might have been the candidate of the common man the candidate of the horny-handed yeoman but he himself was a fancy little dandy a round costed little dutchman who enjoyed rich food and fine clothing and delightfully splendorous living he was an effete gourmand (laughs) and that made a significant contrast with this rough hewn frontier man even though of course harrison was a descendant of virginia planters it very much does prefigure modern politics where even though by any standard the democratic party is the party that serves the interests of common what common people think they have if your presidential candidate is a little bald fancy man and the Whigs have the hard cider and log cabin frontiersman that has an effect And I just wanted to read this description that someone had of Van Buren when they met him when he was campaigning for the Jackson ticket in 1828 in New York. His complexion was a bright blonde, and he dressed accordingly. On this occasion, he wore an elegant snuff-colored broadcloth coat with velvet collar to match. His cravat was (laughs) orange-tinted silk with modest lace tips. His vest was of pearl hue. His trousers were white duck his silk hose corresponded to his vest his shoes were morocco his nicely fitted gloves were yellow kid his hat a longford beaver with broad brim was of quaker color he had the velvet touch of a dandy fop the velveteen touch of a dandy fop indeed just another detail to go along with that uh, in 1840, to hammer that home, they slung all sorts of, uh, you know, accusations along the same lines against him. My favorite is he was accused of having the White House groundskeeper redesign the White House grounds into the style of a French royal garden, including having the gardener create a landscape boob, a human breast out of turf, complete with a nipple, to accuse him of leaving the, like, earthly erotic decadence of French nobility. He's just out there sitting down there looking at a boob with our money look van buren's titty garden didn't create jobs the thing is though that all that stuff is very fun but the real reason he lost is because the economy was still in the shithole and they had no idea about what to do about it it is in fact the economy stupid so van buren loses the little magician the red fox of kinderhook defeated wither van buren what was his fate, Matt? So Van Buren goes back to New York, and he is fettered in grand style by the local Democrats who think of him as their standard bearer in the North. And when he weren't, first went to New York City, greeted by a tumultuous crowd at Tommany Hall, a local Whig diarist described the group, saying he had never seen a more rowdy, draggle-tailed, jailbird-resembling gang of truculent loafers. <laughs> So that's what the Whigs were thinking of the common man who supported the democracy in New York City at that time. (laughs) Jailbird gang of truculent loafers. Again, the language of this era just rocks. That's so good. So he goes back to Kinderhook, raising cabbages on a stately farm. But of course, he immediately starts trying to get back on track to get to the White House. He goes to visit Andrew Jackson at the Hermitage and secures his support. He goes on a tour of the West where he meets Democrats in the far western climes that he had never been to before. This included a trip to Springfield, Illinois, where he spent a night drinking and swapping stories with a number of politicians, including a young Whig state senator named Abraham Lincoln, which is described by people who were present as one of the funniest nights ever. They were laughing, they were getting hammered, they were swapping stories about Daniel Webster getting gunpowder in his breeches. 
Honestly, if I had a time machine, that would be a fun trip. Just watch the old magician and the young rail splitter throwing it back and forth. It's such a fun scene to imagine. I'm sure both of those guys had just amazingly body jokes. So Van Buren goes into the 1848 convention sort of in the lead, but he is unable to secure enough support for the nomination because at that point, even though this guy had supported the South and defended Southern institutions and slavery and Indian removal in order to keep them happy and to keep them in the Democratic Party, by 1848, the issue of annexation of Texas and the extension of slavery into the West became so salient that Southerners start questioning anybody who does not full-throatedly defend a maximalist position on all of those questions and van buren being a new yorker is unable to do so and so his equivocation on western expansion and his refusal to support annexation of texas leads him to fail at the convention which ends up nominating dark horse james k polk on the third day now van buren still a loyal democrat even though he was very disappointed at losing the nomination campaigns for the democrats in new york and helps carry the state and helps give polk the election always a company man and van buren spends the next four years stewing a bit because Polk freezes New Yorkers out of his cabinet and refuses a number of Van Buren's patronage requests. And Van Buren ends up feeling kind of insulted. And when he's offered the English ambassadorship, which he had briefly held under Jackson, he turns it down. Meanwhile, while he's sucking on his wounds in Kinderhook, the New York Democratic Party is splitting on the question of slavery. The split is on the specific question of slavery in the newly acquired Mexican territory, specifically that Wilmot Proviso, which I'm sure you went, if you went to the average American public school at some point, you remember having to write that down in your notebook. I know I do. And that was a clause thrown into legislation annexing the spoils of the Mexican War, explicitly forbidding slavery from any of the territory. And that question became the center of American politics. And of course, obviously, all Southerners and all Southern Democrats are ferociously against it. But within New York, a split developed between the hunkers, who were in favor of acceding to the South's demands so that they could continue hunkering over spoils, because that was the accusation, that they were only doing it so that they could keep their fat positions within the party, and the barn burners, who were called that because they were willing to burn down the barn to kill the rats. Badass. And one of the leading barn burners was Martin Van Buren's son, John Van Buren, who at that point was a very ambitious and popular New York politician, who was looking to use slavery as sort of his launching pad to power. So the barn burners end up walking out of the convention that nominates Lewis Cass in 1848, and they meet to nominate their own candidate for president, who they decide, because he has written a manifesto for them explicitly endorsing their ideas, Martin Van Buren. Mm. And this leads to a huge convention in August of 1848 in Buffalo, New York, where 20,000 barn burners, anti-slavery Whigs, anti-slavery Democrats all come together to form the Free Soil Party with the slogan, Free Soil, Free Speech, Free Labor, and Free Men. And they nominate Martin Van Buren for president and, ironically, Charles Francis Adams, John Quincy Adams' son, for vice president. Kind of an intergenerational unity ticket. So the platform of the Free Soilers has a lot of Whiggish elements in it about banking and internal improvements, but Martin Van Buren swallows those issues in order to embrace the synthesis of a northern anti-slavery political articulation now this is of course heresy this man spent his entire career building the democratic party and he at that point still had base loyalty to that party but he was running as a third party candidate which would probably lead to the defeat of the democrats at least democrats imagined that it would lead to their feet uh 
the Free Soilers ended up getting about 10% of the vote, which is a huge jump from previous anti-slavery parties. But that does help swing the election to the Whigs. So Van Buren's decision here is baffling on its face, but comes down to the fact that the South was overplaying their hand, and Van Buren knew that if there was going to be a coherent Democratic Party in the North, it could not be too associated with Southern interests, because by that point, Southern interests were becoming anathema to Northern voters. When the democracy was founded in the 1830s, anti-slavery settlement was relatively peripheral in the North, and in fact, people who were were opposed to slavery were considered troublemakers. But because of things we'll talk about in the next episode, by 1848, anti-slavery sentiment is much stronger in the North, and that means that for Van Buren, there needed to be essentially a wake-up call to the Democrats to let them know that they were fucking some shit up real bad here by not containing the Southern maximalist demand on the issue of slavery. He was chartering kind of a uh, strategic accelerationist position. Yes. But of course, because at this point, the pro-slavery forces are in the driver's seat in the Democratic Party, they don't listen. And pro-slavery presidents are nominated by the Democrats up until the Civil War, until 1860, when the party literally splits on the issue, at which point Van Buren, who is circling the drain at his home in Kinderhook, was probably thinking, I told you guys, bro, I told you, I told you what would happen if you let the Southerners run wild. And sure enough, it happened. But after 1848, Van Buren goes back into the Democratic fold, supports the Democrats the rest of his life as he tries to muddle his way through memoirs he never finished and refuses to ever support any Republicans. He supported Democrats till the end, endorsing Stephen A. Douglas in 1860, supporting the Crittenden Compromise after the sectional crisis turns into secession and dies shortly after the Civil War begins. His party is unable to do the work of keeping the country knitted together that he had hoped it would. Goodbye, baby, never you cry. You need not fear old Tip and his tie. What they would ruin, Van Buren will fix. Van's a magician, they are but tricks. With that, we will leave off Martin Van Buren. Certainly a political genius of his moment, but in a way hoisted by his own petard. Create an ideologically coherent party, turns out you're kind of constrained by it. Yes, and it doesn't help when there is a fundamental conflict at the heart of the party because you have two conflicting political economies within one system. And things like the Democratic Party were one of the innovations that people like Van Buren and Henry Clay created to try to resolve that. But at the end of the day, if you have a a fundamental enough conflict, there is no political uh, accommodation that can transcend it. And so we close the book on the era of Martin Van Buren, the guy who saw through the mystification of the founding generation to create something bold and new, the beginnings of a party system that would stick with us until Joe Biden only to be trapped by the very structure that he built. So we see you again next week for DC in the middle of the 19th century. Truly, literally, a giant lake of shit. Hell of Presidents was produced by me, Chris Wade, with our co-editor, Nick Quaz. Our music is by Nick Diamonds with additional music by the great Young Chomsky. Our show art is by Branson Reese. Tune in next week 
when we'll flip your wigs.